I'll sing it. Okay, we here at NPR have an app we really like. We want you to try it too. It is called NPR One. You can use it to listen to NPR news, shows, and podcasts. And as you do, it listens to you and it figures out what you like the best and it gives you more of that. We think you will like it. Find NPR One on your app store now. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. On Monday, Hillary Clinton cemented her place as the Democratic Party's presumptive nominee. And just now, she snagged the top endorsement out there, President Barack Obama's. That came a little after Obama and Bernie Sanders met one-on-one at the White House. On the Republican side, Donald Trump continued to struggle with, well, a lot of things. And the GOP establishment is once again struggling with him. We'll get into all of that, answer some listener questions, and end the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we can't stop thinking about this week. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. So Sam's in L.A. recovering from a long week trying to keep pace with Bernie Sanders. Tam was going to podcast with us today, but she got busy doing an interview with Hillary Clinton. I was so excited. We were going to have an all-female podcast. Can I just put that up? Until you, Scott. I'm sorry, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, Scott, nonetheless. But Sam's not here. I listened to a lot of Mariah Carey this week to try and channel Sam. I'll do the best (laughs) that I can. Let's start with some big news. Hillary Clinton's campaign tweeted out a link, and oh, hey, it's a video, Barack Obama. So I want those of you who've been with me from the beginning of this incredible journey to be the first to know that I'm with her. I am fired up, and I cannot wait to get out there and campaign for Hillary. I also want to thank everybody who turned out to vote. Obama heaped a whole lot of praise on Clinton. He also made a point to call out and thank everybody who participated in the primary process, especially first-time voters. And a lot of that is thanks to Senator Bernie Sanders, who has run an incredible campaign. I had a great meeting with him this week, and I thanked him for shining a spotlight on issues like economic inequality and the outsized influence of money in our politics and bringing young people into the process. Embracing that message is going to help us win in November. Asma, earlier this week, we were talking about how big of a role Barack Obama is going to play in both unifying the Democratic Party and also campaigning for Clinton in the fall. Uh, With that in mind, what jumped out to you from this video? I mean, I think the the bit that we heard where he was talking about this is a continuation almost of of his journey was very interesting to me because I think that what we've seen so far is this idea that, you know, Hillary Clinton has been able to galvanize support within the Democratic Party. But you sort of have seen a segmentation, right, within the Democratic Party of folks who support her and then sort of both younger voters and sort of older white voters who support Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And I think that by him sending this message that his support of Hillary Clinton is actually kind of a continuation of his policies, you know, extension of his third term, sends a pretty strong signal. And then, you know, he's already announced or the Hillary Clinton campaign has announced he will be campaigning with her in Wisconsin next week. Of course, that continuation of Obama's policies is what many Republicans are afraid of and are campaigning against. So, you know, it's really going to be a test of of whose message is the most popular and whether that Obama coalition is going to come back. And obviously, Obama did win last time. But, you know, when I cover the Republicans, I hear over and over again, we don't want four more years of essentially Obama. And and Sue, that's the reason why typically uh, a two-term president usually is missing in action in a presidential campaign to replace him. But, But this seems to be the odd case where 
the person running from his party is saying, yeah, I want as much of you as possible in this campaign. Yeah, or presidential candidates want to start their own chapters. They don't want to be seen as an extenuation of another president. They want to be standing on their own. It's about the future. It's not about the past. Uh, The other thing that I heard in his endorsement that was interesting to me when he said, I'm fired up because that goes back to his 2008 campaign, fired up, ready to go, and how that message in his campaign was, you know, all these those younger voters at that moment in time are what propelled the Barack Obama presidency and the candidacy. The and, original millennials. Yeah, the ori- and, and clearly he's trying to say, like, that energy and that, like, I'm trying to re-harness that and put that behind Hillary Clinton, which is the Democrats' big challenge going into November is do they do they unify and do all these Bernie voters who felt so passionately about him, do they come under the fold? All right. Well, we're talking about the Clinton campaign. We're talking about the Democratic primary. Seems like a good time to bring in Tamara Keith. Well, nice of you to join us. <laughs> hey, look who's here. Hello. Hello. Uh, this this is a, a, a big development for the campaign. What did Clinton have to say about it? Well, shockingly, she's thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> no. Barack Obama, forget that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and they are planning to campaign together uh, starting uh, on Wednesday in Wisconsin, next Wednesday in Wisconsin. And uh, I also asked her a few other little questions, what she wants President Obama's role to be, some things like that. And I'm hoping we can just play the tape. Let's do it. The president himself has said he thought part of his job was to remind uh, the American people that being president and commander in chief is a serious responsibility. uh, And he's uniquely qualified to speak about the knowledge, experience and temperament that the presidency requires. And I know he is raring to get out there and start campaigning, and I really look forward to campaigning with him. The big issue that, that the Clinton campaign is trying to work through at this point and that we're all curious to see how it plays out is is how Hillary Clinton courts Bernie Sanders voters and, and how she, she deals with Bernie Sanders and what he decides to do. And I, you, you talked about that too, right? Indeed, we did. Um, and in short, they're planning to meet soon, uh, just as soon as they can get their schedules worked out. Your, your person, call my person, they'll figure it out. And I asked her what role she thought Sanders could have, if we can go to the tape. We have a lot that uh, we believe is uh, in the best interests of our country, and I'm looking forward to uh, working uh, with him uh, during the campaign and uh, then uh, after the inauguration. You guys planning a trip to Unity, New Hampshire anytime soon? Uh, we, we don't have any plans yet, but I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, working with him. Should he have a prominent speaking slot at the convention? Oh, we're going to talk about everything. I, I think his uh, campaign was good for the Democratic Party, good for our country, and I know how passionate he is about the issues he cares about. So we'll have a, a long uh, list of uh, matters to discuss. It was a direct question. It was not a direct answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a pretty simple question. Do you think this person who got some 45% of votes or whatever it is should have a prominent speaking role? She said, "Eh, we'll we'll talk about it. I guess there's a lot to negotiate. But Tam, she mentioned his role after the inauguration, which was kind of interesting to me, though she didn't specify what that role would be or what it would look like. And as we speak, he is on the on Capitol Hill, meeting with Harry Reid, the minority leader, though not for long, and, and other people on the Hill. It seems like he came to Washington, D.C. He met with the president. He's going to meet with the vice president. He's getting lots of hugs, and people are talking to him about his future. Sue? But he still said he's going to stay in through the D.C. primary, right? He Absolutely. has not changed course on that? Yeah, it, the interesting thing is he 
was talking about, he came out of the White House and he was talking about his campaign. Uh, Our campaign has been about building a movement which brings working people and young people into the political process. But then he also said that the uh, he's going to compete through the D.C. primary. He, you know, talked about statehood being a big issue that he wanted to fight on for that. And he also said that he thought that as the votes are continued to be counted in California, that race will get closer. Uh, I spoke briefly to Secretary Clinton on Tuesday night, uh, and I congratulated her on her very strong campaign. I look forward to meeting with her in the near future to see how we can work together to defeat Donald Trump and to create a government which represents all of us and not just the 1%. Thank you very much. Do you have any idea, Tam? I mean, does she see a place for him in her administration if she's elected? Do you have any sense of that? She has demurred. demurred. I did not ask that specific question, but she has demurred on that question when other people have asked it. Uh, My sense is that he is a stronger ally in the Senate and in theory could get a leadership position uh, if the Democrats take over the Senate. So So you cover Congress. I mean, do you get the sense that like by him going out and having this big run for president that he sort of earned himself a promotion, so to speak, in the Senate? Sue? Yes. I mean, I think you don't... There's not really much place for him to go. So much of the Senate, and particularly in the Democratic caucus, is governed by seniority. So it's just a matter of how long you've served there and whether you get committee chairmanships and those kind of things. That being said, you know, Elizabeth Warren isn't the chairperson of any committee, and she has a tremendous amount of sway and influence. So I also, you know, I've talked to a lot of Democratic staffers this week that said they really want Bernie to come back to the Senate. They want him to feel welcome back there. And a lot of them would really like his email list when they run for their own elections in the 2018 midterms. Mm-hmm. Can but, I ask one question? Yeah. Well, why, why is Wisconsin the first stop for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton? Why not Ohio? Why not Pennsylvania? Well, That's, she's already Why not going unity? To- <laughs> Why not unity? Well, she doesn't need unity with Barack Obama. They got that. Um, but she's going to be in Ohio on Monday already and Pennsylvania on Tuesday. And I think they were just looking for another Rust Belt state where President Obama could show up. <laughs> where else is she going on this first stretch? Because this is this is clearly like the first big general election tour that she's doing, right? Yeah. And interesting that the first states she's going to are these sort of Rust Belt states where trade has been an issue, where her initial support sort of of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and then her no longer support of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a real issue, an issue that Donald Trump is going to bring up as much as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And and she is going to those states. They're, they're swing states and they're states where her campaign is clearly looking to fortify support. Sarah? As for Wisconsin, not only is it a Rust Belt state, but remember, it was sort of the last gasp of the Never Trump movement during the Republican primary. Ted Cruz won handily. Maybe they see an opportunity there if there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Trump as the nominee. And it's also a state where Bernie Sanders won. Well, you're going to be on that trip and um, <laughs> on the road busy again. as usual. And and this afternoon, you're, you're, you're busy writing up this Clinton interview. But th- thanks for uh, popping in to talk to us for a few minutes. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here, guys. <laughs> Bye, Bye, Tam. Tam. See ya. Bye, Tam. So all that stuff just happened today. This has been a pretty busy week on the Democratic primary. And just to catch us up to speed, Asma, this started off on Monday with with a pretty 
unusual way for Clinton to uh, become the the Democratic nominee. What happened on Monday night is that the Associated Press, which kind of keeps a tab on you know how delegates are being allocated, called the race for Secretary Clinton. I mean, they called her the presumptive nominee because essentially she had accrued the magic number of delegates and superdelegates. Um, this was, of course, the night before sort of that big final batch of primaries where California and New Jersey would be voting. And so it, it sort of felt anticlimactic. I mean, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton actually had to take the stage, and yet this wasn't the big night she was supposed to be taking the stage. Anticlimactic for her campaign and and pretty upsetting for a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, we got thousands and thousands and thousands, literally, of comments on Facebook, on Twitter, elsewhere, angry at us for reporting this along with other outlets. I'll say that uh, the NPR ombudsman made a good point to to think about. Uh, For all the people who are upset, if if news outlets had uh, a number of superdelegates who they had learned were supporting Bernie Sanders and decided to sit on that news for a couple days, you know, h- how would you think of, of that decision? Exactly. And, and I mean, probably yeah. arguably not what either campaign would have wanted because right. both campaigns wanted their supporters to come out, show support, you know, be energized. And it, it did feel kind of anticlimactic. But, you know, the AP, of course, wanted to break the news. So they did. And the Associated Press is the gold standard of calling elections in this country. So I understand that a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters were upset by it because there is a perception that the media was, you know, there's long been a perception among Bernie Sanders supporters that the media is supportive of Clinton. But the AP has always called these when the numbers are reported. And they had the numbers. And once they confirmed them, they put it out there. I I don't think that the AP has never release those numbers based on when elections are held or not held. It's held when they have the numbers. So that's Monday. Tuesday, you know, actual voting happens. And and Clinton did uh, surprisingly well, considering kind of where things had been going over the last few weeks, what the conversation had been about. She ended up winning four out of the six states and and had kind of a, a surprisingly large win in California compared to what the polls were. And then she, she brings it all to a head and has a really big speech Tuesday night. Sue, what, what did you make of, of that speech that Clinton gave Tuesday? I mean, we should say, we should just pause for a minute and be like, this was a hugely historic week in American politics. The first woman candidate was nominated for a major party to run for president of the United States. I mean, it is something that this campaign has been... It's been such a negative campaign year, but it's also been a hugely historic one. And I think it was really it's really remarkable when you see all sort of like the newspapers and all the coverage put out the next day. It's just like, the, you know, at the museum and other places where they show all the front pages. And mm-hmm. it was a big deal this week. And I think, you know, if you can just pause from partisanship and parties and all of this stuff for a second and say like, wow, this was a big deal. I mean, what do you guys all make of that? Because there's been such a debate of was this something worth pausing and talking about? And it just feels like the bigness was talked about so much more in 2008 with Barack Obama crossing that milestone. So can I, and I don't mean to be the the one to put like a damper on any of this, but I spent a lot of time last week in Ohio. And so this was before Hillary Clinton had officially clinched the nomination, so to speak. But I think that there was, there was sort of a lot of mixed feelings about her. I mean, I think she is a very polarizing woman in her own right. And so, you know, a number of women told me... Um, that they felt that they couldn't trust her or that, you know, they had questions sort of about who she was and that it felt like it was a dynasty family. And that, to me, was sort of of a really interesting word. And we've been talking about this, I think, Scott, you and I might have talked about it a bit, that in some ways, the reason that this feels somewhat anticlimactic for some folks is that Hillary Clinton's been in the spotlight for so long. Yes, she has accomplished a lot in her own right, but much of those political accomplishments came 
you know, sort of after many folks knew of her as a first lady. Literally everybody in the country has known who Hillary Clinton is since 1992. <laughs> Although really they've had the ability time. to sort of form opinions yeah. about her. I mean, when yeah. I was in Ohio this week, I think we have tape of this woman, but I, I met this woman, Sarah Minto, and she was really interesting. She identifies as Republican, but she said, you know, theoretically, she, she'd be willing to cross party lines. She voted for Obama in 2008 and then went with Romney four years ago. And... Um, you know, she she recognized sort of how historic this moment was. She would be the first woman president, which means that she probably would do a pretty good job of running the country because she wants to show that women are capable. But then, you know, we sort of dug down into this and she said, you know, she really does not care for Trump. Trump, she said, makes her stomach turn. So she doesn't think she'll be voting for him. And then I asked her about Hillary Clinton and she has sort of a lot of questions about Hillary Clinton's ethics and morals and issues around the emails. She can't be trusted. She just lies over and over, and she doesn't think it's a big deal. And so I asked her, you know, is there anything that Hillary Clinton could do that would sort of convince you to vote for her? If she took credit for everything she has screwed up on and everything she's lied about and said, I am sorry and I apologize to my people for doing this and for trying to hide it. And here's what I'm going to do so that, you know, I can begin to regain your trust. You know, that that would be huge. Though but, I, I got to wonder if, if it's, yeah, I'd consider if she goes through every single thing she lied about or did wrong. I wonder if, if she's going to vote for somebody if, I mean, if that's the she, way she, she frames it. she said that, well, you know, she was skeptical, though, that Hillary would really take those steps. But I will say this issue of trust came up time and again from Democratic women, from independent women, and, and certainly also from Republican women. Sarah? And I think it's interesting because Hillary Clinton has said, as far as the email server goes, she wouldn't do it this way, you know, again, if she if she could. She's kind of apologized. But I'm not sure if that's, you know, enough, enough for some of her critics. It's also interesting because when you're talking about, like, People know her. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, when you look at polling, uh, they have almost near universal name ID. Almost every single person already knew who they were and had a very strong opinion about them going into this election. And that's a really interesting dynamic as we now shift into a general. And what we do know about them is basically every voter knows who they are. They feel very strongly about them. And a majority of voters dislike more than they like both of them. Yeah. And in just looking back on Hillary Clinton's career, uh, one, one thing that somebody pointed out Tuesday that was kind of mind-blowing was, was Tuesday night when she gives this speech claiming the nomination was eight years ago to the day to when uh, Clinton gave that, mm-hmm. that famous speech dropping out of the 2008 uh, race uh, and so conceding to Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's listen back to that for a sec. You can be so proud that from now on, it will be unremarkable for a woman to win primary state victories. Unremarkable to have a woman in a close race to be our nominee. Unremarkable to think that a woman can be the president of the United States. And that is truly remarkable, my friends. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, talked a lot about the Democratic side. Uh, Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Republicans. Support for NPR comes from Eli Lilly and Company. For 140 years, Lilly has united caring with discovery to make life better for people around the world. Today, they're working to discover life-changing medicines in the areas of diabetes, cancer, autoimmune diseases, and Alzheimer's disease, among others. Learn how the people of Lilly turn inspiration into action at lillyforbetter.com. All right, we're back. 
So Donald Trump, this is the second week we're left discussing a bunch of missteps that seem a little different than the primary season gaffes that would just kind of roll off of Trump. We're talking about a bunch of senior Republicans who were forced to respond to Trump's attacks on a judge in the Trump University case, saying he's Mexican, even though he was born in Indiana and is of Mexican descent. The judge who happens to be, we believe, Mexican, which is great. I think that's fine. You know what? I think the Mexicans are going to end up loving Donald Trump. when I. It seems like every stuff. single Republican in Washington had to respond to this. The most high-profile response came from House Speaker Paul Ryan. Claiming a person can't do the job because of their race is sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. I think that should be absolutely disavowed. It's absolutely unacceptable. But do I believe that Hillary Clinton is the answer? No, I do not. And Mitch McConnell got in on this, too. And my advice to our nominee would be to start talking about the issues that, American, that the American people care about and to start doing it now. In addition to that, uh, it's time to quit attacking various people that you competed with or various minority groups in the country and get on message. He has an opportunity to do that. Sarah and Sue, you've been covering this from from two different angles. Uh, How much did this dominate both of your weeks? And and what do you make of all this? I mean, it's kind of crazy to have the two most powerful Republican lawmakers in the country basically attacking the Republican nominee for president. Sarah? And this happened in a week that, you know, in many ways, Donald Trump should have been marching out in front, bringing the party together behind him. He finally, you know, he's been the presumptive GOP nominee for a while. He finally, for sure, has a presumptive, you know, Democratic rival in Hillary Clinton. You know, he, sh- he should be doing a victory lap and going after her. Instead, he's he's getting criticism from his own party for these statements uh, that, you know, infuriated a lot of Republican leaders and have them very concerned, I think, about uh, November. Sue? In the horse race of this campaign, this was a devastating week for Republicans. When the Republican nominee is having to answer questions over whether or not he's a racist and having members of his own party and and the senior levels of his own party suggesting he has to walk these comments back, you've had Senator Lindsey Graham, a Republican of South Carolina, who was part of the initial Republican candidates who ran for president, who's long been a Donald Trump critic, saying people should rescind their endorsements of him. We've had prominent conservatives on Capitol Hill saying they cannot endorse him at this time. I mean, this is a mess. There is there's no other way for them to sort of explain this away. That being said, you know, Trump has time and time again proven an ability to turn, rehabilitate, change and and reassess. And he's in the middle of doing that now. You know, we saw him give this speech this week after Tuesday's elections where he spoke on a teleprompter, which a lot of people pointed to as a suggestion that maybe he is willing to get more on message to be more of a traditional candidate. But if they have more weeks like this one it's going to be very difficult for Donald Trump to win this election. What was the vibe from Republicans on Capitol Hill this week? I mean, I have to imagine they they would literally want to do anything else in the world than, than stand there and talk about whether or not Donald Trump is a racist and whether or not they support him. Exactly. And and where Paul Ryan was speaking this week is House Republicans this week kicked off uh, a campaign agenda. It's the things that they say they would do next year if they get a Republican in the White House. And Paul Ryan's here. He wants to talk about anti-poverty initiatives and how do you boost jobs. And the entire press conference was having the speaker defend or explain or, or criticize his Republican nominee over comments that were racist. And then it's also created this secondary conversation of, 
of is Donald Trump a racist or is comments racist or what is racist? And if that is the conversation you're having going into your convention, your party is not in a good position. Right. Sam was saying a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the uh, the Nevada State Convention that if you're arguing over whether you hoisted the chair or threw the chair, it's a bad place to be. I think the same thing is true with was the comment racist or are you a racist? Right. And that's a distinction without a difference for a lot of voters. And, you know, if their message this week was essentially uh, this guy who makes sometimes racist comments is still better than Hillary Clinton. And that's a tough that is a tough message. And that is the kind of thing that also a lot of these down ballot candidates, Senate races that are also in these presidential battleground states. I mean, they see this kind of stuff and it just it, it, it is really scary to them. Asma? I spent Monday calling a number of Hispanic activists and and leaders and, and voters sort of in different states, particularly folks in Florida. And I will say, you know, these comments really resonate. And I, I was specifically calling Hispanic Republicans. I mean, these are not comments that people can just sort of hear once and they will float away and folks will forget about it. I mean, I think that there is maybe a belief on Capitol Hill that um, what Trump said before, you know, two months ago, we can forget. I think that they have really stuck with a lot of these Hispanic Republicans. All these Republicans are, are giving what I think a lot of people would say is like pretty conventional wisdom advice. Stop, de- stop denouncing a federal judge for his heritage. You know, not the most out there on a limb Stay thing to say. Stay on message. <laughs> Talk about the issues. But again and again, uh, the Trump campaign, or specifically Trump himself, w- would kind of lash out at all of these critiques and push people away. Right. I mean, we saw him reining it in a little bit on Tuesday night. He seemed, you know, he earlier in the day after Paul Ryan's comments, he released a statement saying he was not going to talk about the Trump University case anymore, although he hasn't totally stuck to that already this week, um, and saying that his, his statements had been misconstrued. We saw him give this teleprompter speech, very scripted for the most part, again, on Tuesday night. You know, in talking to to people in the campaign, my sense is that Trump feels, for the most part, that what he's saying is just common sense, that his supporters agree with it, that they feel the same way, and um, that it's resonating with a lot of people. I think the other big question is, even if Trump does get on message and stop, you know, take Mitch McConnell's advice and stop attacking his former rivals and stop attacking specific groups of people, even if he does that, is that going to be enough? Because the things he's been saying for the past year, really, are still out there, you know, in in recorded form. And it's not like even if the voters forget them, they're going to be reminded of them. Sarah, that's that's so true. I mean, I was in Ohio this last week, and I specifically wanted to hear from Republican women, because we've seen, I think, you know, Sue, you were saying this earlier, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are very unliked by the general electorate. And so we hear these numbers of, you know, Donald Trump has 70 percent unfavorables with women. But I really wanted to hear, how is he being perceived by Republican women? And I would say there's kind of a mixed bag in how he's being perceived. There's a group of women who are supportive of Donald Trump. They were supportive of him either from the beginning or subsequently they are sort of on board. And one woman told me really bluntly, you know, she doesn't necessarily like Trump, but she doesn't know that she needs to like him to vote for him. She's sort of been able to separate the two. Um, But then there's also a group of women who really don't like him and they really don't like Hillary Clinton. And so they're not really sure what to do. And there's a lot of um, Ted Cruz supporters who I talked to who fit into that boat. There was one woman, Tamara Frazier. She lives in this sort of bougie suburb outside of Columbus. I met her at a coffee shop, and she voted for Ted Cruz in the primary. And she says, you know, she she sort of thinks every so often she hears something from Donald Trump that kind of appeals to her. And she thinks, you know, maybe I could go with this guy. Like, you know, a lot of times he's on late night talk shows, and I'll hear him, and he's being very calm and reasonable. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sitting there going, okay, 
That's that small it's, window that it's possible like. he can have good manners. <laughs> he won't embarrass us out of our mind, you know. So, I mean, I find myself going, okay, maybe not so bad. And then I'm not kidding. Like, right when I'm thinking that, that crazy commercial comes on, and I'm like, oh, we're history. <laughs> So you could hear her friend. This was both her and her friend are Ted Cruz supporters. They were both talking to me at this coffee shop. But that crazy commercial that she was referring to, she says, is this ad that keeps playing in Ohio. Bimbo. Dog. Fat pig. Real quotes from Donald Trump about women. A person who is very flat chested is very hard to be a 10. I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. Look at that Where face. various comments that, that Donald Trump has made about women are sort of replayed. And Sarah, this is as you were saying, these are former comments that he made about, you know, a woman's height or about a woman's appearance. And she says every time she's sort of on the fence thinking, OK, I could get on board with Donald Trump. She'll see that commercial and it completely flips her attitude about him. Right. And, and this group is going to spend like millions and millions and millions of dollars running ad after ad. Uh, I asked her what Trump. she would do on election day. I said, "Are you there for Trump? Would you vote for him?" And she laughed and she said, "You know, I think it really depends if I end up seeing that ad on election day before I go to vote." Wow. Well, and that is to me like a really good point, though, is that it's it's worth saying too that like the difference between the two campaigns is that Hillary Clinton has a very tr- traditional, well-funded, strategic political campaign operation. And the Trump campaign operation is still very much on the fly, still very much shoots from the hip, and he's still very much, you know, the CEO of his whole campaign. And I think this week was a good example of why that can be really bad for a candidate. And even uh, Trump contradicting his own campaign, where his campaign put out a memo to supporters to say, here's how we should talk about the judge. Here's the way we should message this. And Trump ripped up his own campaign's advice. Right, on a conference call said... Don't don't back off. Don't be afraid to talk about this. And we talk a lot in, in previous campaigns in Barack Obama's 08 and 12 campaign. He got a lot of praise as the no drama Obama campaign that having campaigns that are essentially like running multimillion dollar corporations because they're national and they deal with hundreds of millions of dollars and all these things that the Clinton campaign just structurally has a lot of in advantages going into this general election because they do things like knowing where to run those ads. Uh, yeah. I mean, just last point on that. Uh, Bloomberg had an article out today uh, talking about the Trump campaign campaign. And, and, and they quoted somebody on the staff saying, we're worried that when we decide who the vice president's going to be, you know, Donald Trump might just tweet it out and we won't have our whole like uh, planned uh, rollout of it, which I think says a lot right there. So uh, that's enough Trump for now. We're going to take one more quick break. We're going to come back and answer some listener mail. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. <laughs> All right. All right, we're back. I started to read Let's Hit the Mailbag. Asma pointed out that mailbags do not exist. So let's hit the inbox or like Twitter mentions. Uh, remember to email us your questions or feedback at nprpolitics at npr.org. While you're doing that, you can rate the show on iTunes if you like it so everybody else can find it. 
All right, Courtney emailed, what is going on with a Supreme Court nomination? I haven't heard anything about this for a while. Do we really have to wait for the next president? Uh, short answer, Courtney, yes. <laughs> uh, Merrick Garland is uh, President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court. There is no indication that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is going to change his mind on his stated position that it is the next president that should get to decide who the nominee is. Merrick Garland has been on Capitol Hill. He's meeting and greeting with all the senators up there. There's still a conversation going on. But nothing has happened to sort of put political pressure on Republicans to change their mind. It's hard to see what would happen to make them change their mind and want to have this vote before the election. The one hope that supporters of Merrick Garland hold out for is that whatever happens in the election might allow for in the lame duck, which is the time after the election, before the next president's sworn in, that Congress could do it in that period of time. I still think that's even wishful thinking, but that as of right now, best chance for Merrick Garland is a lame duck vote. If not, it will be the next president who gets to decide. And that thinking is that if Hillary Clinton's elected, she might go with a more liberal pick, so better to appoint the, uh, the right. more centrist if, Garland. If if Hillary Clinton were to win and, and Republicans lose the Senate, that Republicans may be more willing to confirm someone who is a more moderate judge versus taking a more risky pick and letting Hillary Clinton in a Democratic Senate try and put someone forward who is more liberal. Uh, that said, Hillary Clinton has on the campaign spoken very highly of Merrick Garland and suggested that he should be confirmed. So it's an indication that if she were to win, that she would continue his nomination. Mm -hmm. um, and as we know, Donald Trump has put out a list of judges that he are the types of judges he would put forward if he gets to name the nominee. Here's another question. Emily wrote us from the Middle East. Hello, longtime listener of you guys. I'm an American living in Jordan, working on the Syrian refugee response. Is there a chance a Trump presidency would have a more isolationist approach as compared to a Clinton presidency? Well, you know, Donald Trump certainly promises that he won't send American troops into war unless we really have to. He says that he was opposed to um, the Iraq war, although there you know, is, are mixed reports about their indications he, he wasn't. But anyway, he is promising at his rallies that he will not intervene unless he has to. He's using the slogan, America first, which is this idea both in trade and I think also in terms of military that the U.S. has to come first. We have to make ourselves the, the number one priority. Don't do anything, including uh, military action, unless it benefits the U.S. Now, I think the big question is, and the question that a lot of foreign policy experts have is what kind of a president would Trump be in terms of diplomacy and international relations? Might he say or do something that would inflame the anger of another country? And what would that mean for our, our diplomacy and, and potentially military? Asma? Yeah, I mean, I think it, Secretary Clinton has a reputation, certainly, I think, even within democratic circles of being sort of more hawkish than others, right? I mean, I heard this a number of times from supporters of Bernie Sanders, that they had questions about some of her past experiences and her support for the U.S. Iraq war initially. But, you know, whether or not, I guess, Trump would be more isolationist, I think it's so interesting and perhaps depends on sort of what day we see Trump. I mean, Trump at sometimes does project this very nationalist image of what he wants his foreign policy to be like, but then other days also says he wants to bomb the hell out of ISIS. So I think it almost sort of depends on what version of Trump we see. It's hard to predict. And last question is from Megan. She emailed, I'm 29 or I will be on Friday. So happy, happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I was pretty young during the Clinton presidency. I feel a bit guilty being a strong Hillary supporter without really knowing much about her life and qualifications prior to 2008. Do you have any recommended reading that would help me learn more about Hillary's experiences before that time? I've got a couple books for you, Megan. 
Um, I think the best like comprehensive biography of Hillary Clinton that that, that took kind of like an impartial uh, approach. I mean, there's there's tons of anti-Hillary books and tons of pro-Hillary books, but uh, Carl Bernstein wrote a book uh, when she was first running for president in 2008 called A Woman in Charge that goes through her early years, um, her early professional career, the, the Clinton administration, and her run for Senate. And uh, given how much Donald Trump has, has talked about these 90s Clinton scandals, things like Whitewater, things like Bill Clinton's impeachment, making it clear that, that he's going to be taking a look at that, there's a really good book that, that just digs into all of that called The Death of American Virtue, kind of a weird name, but it's by uh, Ken Gormley, and he, uh, he interviewed literally every single person involved. He talked to Bill Clinton, he talked to Ken Starr, he talked to Monica Lewinsky, and it just answers everything you would want to know about Whitewater, about all the various investigations. That's that's a good read there. But I think I think a lot of this is that, you know, if you were young or not even, you know, born for most of the Clinton years, like like many voters, young voters are, it, you know, it, that memory isn't fresh. Uh, I mean, you might not remember all the all the sort of sorted details of the Kenneth Starr report, for instance, but that may be part of why Hillary Clinton is just, especially for younger voters, maybe more of a blank slate. Is that fair to say? Yeah. But Donald Trump is going to try to remind all of us of what the 90s involved and including including all the criticism of the Clintons in the 90s. He's promising to give a speech talking about what the Clintons have been doing, as he put it. Uh, we'll see what he has to say. It's like really get, relitigating the 1990s and who gets to recast the narrative, which is also another thing that's really interesting about this race is that so much of this election is about the past right. the and 90s. not about the future and who they were before they ran and the things they've done before they ran. And it's just dark and ugly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it makes this a hot human fire of an election. But uh, Well, if yeah. we're going to talk about the 90s, hopefully that will meet, lead to a Yankees resurgence as well, because that was a good decade. Will it also lead back to like baby doll dresses and flare jeans? Boy bands. I Delia's know. catalog. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Don't remember Delia's catalogs. <laughs> um, I, think, I think Delia's catalogs, whatever those are, is a good transition to Can't Let It Go, though. Um can't Let It Go is, of course, when we all share something we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Uh, who wants to go first? Okay, sure. I'll go first. <laughs> um, so what I can't let go kind of ties into what we were already talking about around Hillary Clinton and just sort of, you know, how historic or or sort of ahistoric, I don't know if that's the right word, but sort of, let's say climactic or anticlimactic, you know, her her run is as this sort of leader of the the first woman to lead a major party ticket. And so last week when I was in Ohio, I met up with these um, group of women who have a mom's book club. And there were two really funny women in particular who kind of, to me, hit at something that I haven't been able to let go because it sort of speaks so much to sort of what was attractive about Obama's campaign and what some people feel like is missing from Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I wouldn't say I'm like, rah, rah, Hillary. I'll put a sign in my yard, you know, but it wasn't like Barack Obama. I bought his calendar every year he was in office and hung it on my wall. <laughs> That's a thing? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I'm not going to be going out to buy the Hillary calendar. It's like a firefighter calendar. <laughs> I know. Fully clothed. We have the family. I was like, they're, like, they're so, like, they just have a cool factor. The whole family... Whereas the Clintons are, like, plodding through, the career politicians. And so to me, it was, like, this really interesting thing. And one of our colleagues, Elsa Chang, she heard this bite. She heard me playing it out loud. And she burst out laughing. And she was like, you know, there was this factor, though, to Obama that he was. He was cool or that he, 
you know, this election progresses through November. Like, is there a moment when, like, Hillary becomes cool enough for your calendar? But she had her moments before, uh, like... With the, the cell phone, the Yeah, text like from the Hillary. glasses, the text for Hillary thing. That kind of checked that box, But she right? had nothing to do with that. Yeah. That was completely outside of herself and her operation. Maybe it just has to go full circle. Like, she becomes so... So uncool that at some point it just becomes like ironically hip. Like normcore? Like normcore. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Sarah, what can you not let go? Um, so we were talking earlier about Donald Trump's uh, teleprompter scripted speech on Tuesday night. And, uh, you know, this is after, of course, earlier in the election cycle criticizing people for using teleprompters. But he did have one. I was in the room. He was, I think, trying to respond to the criticism and, and appear more presidential. And he mostly stuck to his script, but there was a moment where he was talking about trade and somebody in the audience shouted out, no TPP, which means the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What's happening there is absolutely a disgrace. No PPP! No PPP. You're right about that. Yeah, public policy polling is terrible. (laughs) So, and you mean no PP. Did you guys catch that? Did he make a bathroom joke? I, Donald Trump made a bathroom joke. I'm pretty Uh sure he made a pee joke. So... I can't let go of that. 2016, setting a record for, like, bathroom-related comments. Yeah, from, totally. Small yeah. hands, bathroom stuff. Like. Yeah. Oh, so moving on from that pretty quickly. Sue. Uh, so my can't let it go this week, guys, is Beyonce. Oh, because you went. I went. I went on Sunday night in Philadelphia. I took the train up on Sunday, and I saw her Sunday night in Philly with my best friend. And part of the reason why I can't let it go is I am tracked from D.C. to Philadelphia. And when I was waiting for my train, I ran into Amy Walter, which some podcast listeners might know. She's a political analyst. She's on TV all the time. I've known Amy a long time. Uh, And we rode the train up together. And so we had this, like, three-hour conversation about the election. And it was about, like, just talking about all these dynamics that we've talked about a million times in the podcast about, you know, the gender divisions and the racial divisions and how negative this campaign is and how how we both think this is going to be a really negative general election year. And it, it was a great conversation, but it was also just one of those ones that we both kind of joked at the end of it. Like, we made this joke about when we have free time on the internet. This is when you just, like, look at, like, this baby monkey and this kitten are best friends. Like, you need, like, you need things to, like, balance out all the, like, hard... And a lot of times covering politics, you focus on the negative naturally. So, so we have this conversation and then I leave and then... I go meet up with my best friend and we go to this Beyonce concert and it was amazing. It was like singularly the best concert I've ever been to in my life. Oh, wow. It was one of the most like cool experiences Have of a concert. Have you seen Beyonce before? No. Okay. But I've seen like Bruce Springsteen, like I've seen big shows. Even with Springsteen, I have never been in a place where when like the the stadium was singing the song. They weren't just like singing along. They were like dancing from the diaphragm. <laughs> I saw the pictures you post. You you wore some like Beyonce-esque earrings. Too. Yeah, I wore really big earrings. I just feel like oh, when did you're you like wear her clothing line. No, but I, I do. Feel like that was hesitated. No, no, but I, only because I was trying to remember what I wore. But I do have some Ivy Park workout gear. Yeah. I, I admit I own some, but I did not wear it to the concert. <laughs> So what's your Can't Let It Go, Scott? Well, uh, my Can't Let It Go is the politics podcast number one celebrity superfan, and that is Zach Guilford, best known from Friday Night Lights, where he Matt plays Saracen. Matt, Matt Saracen. Saracen. He, uh, he is like a huge fan of the podcast, and he tweets about it sometimes, and uh, 
he he ran into some of our colleagues who do pop culture happy hour at like a festival a couple of weeks ago and apparently was going on and on about how much he loves the podcast. So uh, we tweeted each other sometimes now. It's very exciting. <laughs> so you're basically you're like best friends. You're BFFs. Yeah. You're he, basically best friends with him now. In my head. Yes. In my head. Tweeting about what, martinis? That's true because Sam was talking about uh, how he likes dirty martinis. I'm a big fan of dry martinis instead. Dirty I, all the way. Well, I think uh, Zach Guilford would, di- would respectfully disagree <laughs> with your decision on that. Yeah, uh, I just want to I just want to complain to to Zach that he follows like most of my colleagues on the podcast and not me. So I'm officially not cool for saying that, but I I and actually noticed and I'm a little sad. You're like one of the bigger Friday Night Lights fans. I know. I know. I watched like almost the entire thing when I had a newborn. So Anyway, it's okay, Zach. I still like you. Well, Zach, if you're ever in town, uh, look us up. We'll, uh, we'll buy you a martini, and thanks for listening. And uh, that is a wrap. As always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. Please do us a favor and rate the show on iTunes if you like it. That really helps, and we really appreciate it. And find us on Twitter if you want to talk like Zach does. Or you can email us your questions at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 